welcome to Reworked, the podcast about our working lives. For many of us, the work we do defines our place in the world. Increasingly, we are looking for meaningful work, which is aligned to our personal values and beliefs. And we want to feel proud and positive about the relationships we build and the services we deliver. Jane Farrell founded EW Group in 1992 with Annie Hedge. She's one of the UK's leading experts on diversity and inclusion and has been working in the field for 26 years. In this episode of Reworked, we met up in the offices of EW Group, so apologies, there's quite a lot of background noise, to talk about how she got into this field of study, what motivates her to continue working in diversity and inclusion, and what inspires her. Jane Farrell, welcome very much to the Reworked podcast. A pleasure to have you here after these these weeks. This is the this is the interview we've we've been waiting for. Obviously, <laughs> you and I know each other. <laughs> we do. Um, but there's a lot about you that I don't know. And what I'm really interested to talk about in, with you in the next twenty minutes is a little bit about how you got into this field. Um, you know, a bit more about your your background, your your drivers for working in diversity and inclusion. Mm. Um, if that's okay. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's been an exceptional week. At EW Group, every week at EW Group is busy, to say the least. <laughs> but not every week do you get invited to appear on the um, Radio Force Today program um, and Channel Five News. Mm. So, do you want to just just tell us a little bit about why why that came about? Obviously, this is the week of recording. Um, there's been a particular incident that's been newsworthy around diversity and inclusion, hasn't there? Well, the reason that. Um it was being covered so extensively on Tuesday was the incident that that happened in a Starbucks cafe where uh, two young black men who had been sitting waiting for a friend to arrive uh, hadn't ordered a coffee, asked to use the bathroom. The manager then uh, called the police and um, the, the men were handcuffed by the police and taken off the premises and this sparked, of course, a massive outrage in the, in the States and, um, and elsewhere and the Starbucks have made the decision to put every member, uh, every, to close every store and put every member of staff mm-hmm. through unconscious bias training so the, um, I was contacted the night before on uh, Bank Holiday Monday uh, and asked to appear on the Today programme the next, the next uh, morning and one of the angles that the Today programme had was, you know, is this really going to work, can a four hour training course be effective and my response was no not if that's all that is to be done but if it's part of a whole uh, complex serious piece of work then Mm. of course it can make a real contribution Mm. and that was a similar thing that Channel 5 wanted me to talk about as well but you know from, from, from my point of view it obviously shouldn't have happened but Starbucks had uh, responded to this dreadful situation very strongly and powerfully. There was one figure that quoted that it was going to cost Starbucks $12 million to close the stores. My reflection on that is that's a drop in the ocean compared to the lost revenue that might have occurred and the, and the damage to the brand mm. had they not taken strong action. Mm. So that's, that, that was the flurry uh, <laughs> earlier this week. And of course there, there has been for couple of years now a big flurry around unconscious bias as a term um, of course EW Group's been operating in this area for 26 years this year um, working with very similar themes but this this trend for unconscious bias do you see it going away? 
No, I think um, it, it's possible that it, it might be called different things because when uh, Annie Hedge and I set up the business all that, t- all that time ago, the, the phrase unconscious bias didn't exist, but it's still we were talking about micro-behaviours that were either conducive to an inclusive environment or, or not. So I think the language changes, but underpinning it, the work is is actually to think through how advantage and disadvantage operates and I expect in five years time there'll be it'll be called a different thing but we won't be taking our eye off the ball of that in, in the end it's it's advantage and disadvantage mm. that we're thinking through mm. and how that's expressed in organizations so everybody of course has to go on and Everybody goes on a journey when they come on one of our training programmes, somebody else's training programme around diversity and inclusion, uh, uh, developing their awareness of, as you say, how disadvantage and advantage operate. Um, can you take us back to the beginning of your story? and how did, how, what, how did you start to build your awareness early on around some of these themes? Right, I think it's a really good point that every, we all have our story and I suppose as one of five children brought up in an in a Irish Catholic family in Liverpool, that's where my journey started. Actually to be Catholic in Liverpool when I was growing up was, was advantageous because we were in the majority mm. Catholics and uh, um, not always the case of course across the UK and, and, not, and certainly not in all times but it was when I was growing up. Um, to be part of a, a family of five was perfectly ordinary in the primary school that, and secondary school that I went to. Um, the secondary school I went to was a grammar school, so I passed my 11 plus. I was acutely aware that most of my friends hadn't, so, um, and, and that that really was going to affect their life chances and me going to a grammar school was going to affect affect mine so I was in terms of class social class and the advantages um, that that gave me a real privilege and advantage mm-hmm. in the in the in the world um, there were books in the house that I was brought up in um, and again I was very conscious that that wasn't necessarily the case and I uh, had um, uh, close friends who were from very very poor families I wasn't a wealthy family by any means but it, it, it all things are relative mm-hmm. so uh, I was also conscious that there were very few black students in the grammar school I went into and that Liverpool geographically at that point still to, to some extent now but, but less so were, was segregated in terms of ethnicity there were particular parts of Liverpool where um, black people lived and, 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 then, and then others so by the time I was 18 I had thought about I had experienced all of this and the other thing probably to mention is when my dad came back from the Second World War he um, like many people were encouraged to go into teaching although it didn't have any qualifications at the time um, because they were short of teaching and he went into special educational needs teaching so he also gave us gave me an insight into disability and impairment and, and what that meant um, mm. Yeah. Mm. Can I just pause you there before you go any further in yes. your story? Because I'm just thinking about childhood and how, obviously, how children see the world through a very different lens to adults and do notice difference. Yeah, you notice. Yeah. You notice all of those things. Like a lot of us can remember, we will have done as well. Yes. Yeah. So, what happens in between childhood and adulthood in terms of do we lose this ability to to notice difference and to to notice when we might be in a um, an advantage group versus a disadvantage group? 
Well, I think I think that's really interesting because I think what 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 happens is um, that we become somewhat inured to our own privilege. Those of us who have privilege. So, I think I went. I was very lucky. I went to university. I was of that generation that was on a full grant, um, and and. Then the, the the more in, in a way the more advantaged and privileged we are the the, the 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 harder it is because it is really difficult to spot advantage uh, when we're advantaged and really it takes a microsecond to spot when we're disadvantaged and that that is really a, a key contention that we need to all find a way to grapple with because it is genuinely difficult um, if you're living in a very nice a- 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 area and you, you, you've you got enough money to pay the gas bill and you're well respected at work and everybody's uh, saying what, how good you are it, it is actually a genuine piece of work to think about how to manage people in a way, a group of people who haven't got all of those advantages or deliver to commun- people in communities that haven't mm. so so I think we just become used to either the advantages that we've got or, or the disadvantages. Disadvantages. But I don't think people, those of us who are experiencing disadvantage in different ways, I don't think that, that ever goes away because it, it's like, it's like um, you know, we feel it in our gut. It feels very familiar to us. So um, I came out when I was in my 20s, early, mid-20s, and of of course it is something that I notice still that people assume things about the gender of your partner if you have one and and, and definitely have experienced harassment um, as a a lesbian and etc, etc. Some of it goes on. But actually then, um, as, as someone who is also... Um, lucky in the in the work that they have and the income that they are on, I, I'm protected in that in that way. So it's interesting, isn't it? Because we're advantaged in some ways and disadvantaged in others. Mm. And it's almost like a very complicated Rubik cube, which moves. It's not only age that moves about; it's mm. uh, all of our experience of advantage and disadvantage. Mm. So. Um, Take us back. So let's go back oh, into yes, the Jane Farrell story. <laughs> yes. Got a little bit more there. That was good. So um, you went to university. Went to university. Yeah. And after that, what was the next stage? Well, I didn't have a clue uh, um, what I was going to do, and I um, um, ended up um, in a, working in a place with young people who've been through the care system, and um, again, I was found that really challenging is very disturbed young young people who had who had kept on running away from the can so it was the front door was locked and really I had an English degree I didn't have a clue uh, um, about really how to provide uh, support for those people but I think they must have been desperate for uh, staff um, I, I was there for a year and um, it, that was in Liverpool and was offered a management job and, and that's when I thought no I, this is not for me I, 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 I want to do something else so I trained as a teacher mm-hmm. I went to London trained as a teacher and then worked in Hackney and of course that was a great learning curve for me in terms of diversity and inclusion and I um, more and more lived the fact that if I didn't understand about class and race and sexual orientation and disability and all of those things, then I could not be a great classroom teacher. 
I just just couldn't, you know, if I was an English teacher, so the, the, you know, I had to think about which books I was presenting to the students, otherwise they wouldn't engage with them, and, and had to think about um, behaviour management and all of those from a perspective of you know, it's easier for some children than others to turn up on time and with their pens out and all, all keen for lots of mm. reasons so I, I learnt such a lot in schools and, and then I worked in college I went to, uh, got jobs in, in colleges and, and became, got more and more interested in training around um, equality and diversity and inclusion and then, and then got frustrated um, education was under a lot of pressure uh, at that time in the late 80s and um, I couldn't do the work that I wanted to do and then I was lucky enough to bump into Annie Hedge and she felt the same and so we thought oh okay we're going to have to set up a business <laughs> if we're going to do the work that we want to do we're going to just have to set it up so at the so time the, the, oh, the, social, yeah. the social justice your desire for social your interest in social justice and your commitment to that runs throughout that whole story yes and this yes. bit of this entrepreneurial bit that comes in now where does that come from? Well, <laughs> I, I, I think it was just frustration that I could, we couldn't do the work that we wanted to do. Mm. So, um, uh, I, I mean, the social justice part was definitely part of the story that I got from a part of the values that my mum and dad had. And, and, and in, in terms of on, on, entrepreneurship, um, I, I was living in a hard-to-let council flat in Hackney. Um, in, uh, in the late 80s and, and, and in some ways that uh, it's hard to let because um, uh, teachers used to get um, uh, access to places that people, other people wouldn't want to live in teachers and social workers um, uh, of course that doesn't exist now um, what that meant was that I didn't have uh, I didn't have uh, children and I and I didn't ha- I didn't have a massive mortgage or so and in, in a way I think that that freed me up mm-hmm. um, but I didn't ever think that I'd run a business it was literally frustration that made that made me and Danny think right gonna, we're going to have to just do it and and then and then didn't have any income uh, my mother was horrified uh, didn't, didn't have a job didn't have a pension and um, uh, I could never explain to her what what, what I was doing anyway in the, um, but but basically we were in Annie and I uh, used a spare room in Annie's house and and we had no work so you know I had to get on the phone and create it and um, and Annie was. Yeah, we, we worked together very well doing different different things but, so, and then I found it exciting but I did have to go through that moment where I felt a bit embarrassed about talking about the work because mm. it almost like, I kind of felt like a dodgy second hand car sales person mm. um, whereas, and, then, and then of course I had to uh, I, I naturally thought well I, I'm not we're not selling anything Dodgy, you know, we're mm. selling something that will genuinely help organisations be better and, mm. and will address social justice, so there's social mm. justice in the business case. But I had to go through that process because I worked in the public sector and um, other people in my family weren't running their own businesses. And, um, and, and also a couple of years after starting the business, I did think, well, I really haven't got a clue about starting a business, so I'll do an MBA. And that doing an MBA at the Open University was really great for me. Couldn't have done it um, full-time. Um, it nearly saw me off, of course, <laughs> starting, uh, because it was the early days of business and doing an MBA. But it, it brought me into contact with all kinds of people from all kinds of sectors and all kinds of thinking that I hadn't hadn't been part of my education mm. so I really valued that okay so um, it's really it's so interesting to hear 
your formative experiences particularly and the sort of the layering of the understanding that, that you've developed through through the things you've been influenced and exposed to over that time around inclusion and exclusion and you've obviously in the 26 years you've been running EW Group seen a lot bad practice good practice yeah. the Starbucks incident is not an isolated incident um, we see those you know most days of the week um, yeah. yeah either ourselves indirectly or directly ourselves how do you and I'm sure this is a question a lot of people have thought of asking you how do you stay so having witnessed a lot of things and experienced a lot of things personally how do you stay so positive about diversity and inclusion as a force for good and not get bogged down in the misery of it yes <laughs> yeah well I think I think it is genuinely one of the most exciting areas of work to be in so that's helpful I find it intellectually interesting about how, how to go into an how we go into an organisation and, and genuinely think, understand them enough and then think through how we help that organisation develop so the, 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 it's hard I find that interesting it, mm. if it was easy I really don't think I'd want to do it so that's good but also there is loads of good practice there is such a lot of good practice and such a lot of people who want to get it right and who are passionate and committed and serious about it that, that that's my that's my focus now it doesn't mean that I'm at all naive so this week I've worked with some brilliant senior leaders who are um, who have thought through their own story about why diversity and inclusion is important to them and who can articulate what they're going to do and really want to uh, uh, it, get better at it I've also spoken to senior leaders this very week who um, have said that they've never thought about diversity and inclusion that they they don't notice whether anyone is black or white men or women this is in 2018 it's quite a, a struggle to think that this is the case in the middle of London and and, and actually use terms that I haven't heard since I was growing up in Liverpool, um, mm. really, used. used uh, um, so terms to describe black people as, as coloured and disabled people as handicapped and uh, references to girls. So, you know, we, we see the whole range. But with that, with that latter group, what I honestly think is, well, there's a lot of work to do here. So, uh, and I can, I and we can really help them get this right because clearly the company that they're working for hasn't helped them understand what the standards are so that is genuinely my 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 drive I think well okay a lot of work to do I remember a consultant years ago coming back from a, a workplace and saying to me well we can't work there Jane it's really you know that they pay people really badly and they do this and they do that and it's like well that's just the place we should go into mm. yeah, let's go in there and, and mm. talk to them about the equivalent of the living wage and, 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 and how to make sure that there's career progression for women who are returning from maternity leave so it is an orientation uh, around things will change and that things can change mm. there's not a naivety but I think it would be really hard to work in this field without that belief genuine belief that things can be better and wanting to contribute to that mm. and also the alternatives really are attractive to sort of yes. staying in, in bed really um, <laughs> um, and uh, being gloomy yeah yeah. but it's interesting you talk about se- let's finish on the senior leaders because we've talked about um, how people, you, but and how other people can build their awareness of advantage and disadvantage. Yeah. Um, 
advantage goes hand in hand with privilege, which goes hand in hand with power. Mm. And we've seen, coming back to the media piece, we've seen in the last 12 months a lot of the diversity and inclusion noise has been around power, people in positions of power. Yeah. So, as a final sort of parting thought, what how can senior people who maybe haven't thought about this yet, how can they build their awareness of their own the moments when they're in I'm in a powerful position here. Yeah. I'm in a position of advantage. Yeah. How can they take how can they find a way of noticing that? Yeah. Well I think um Partly, that's our uh, kind of our, our respon- responsibility as a business is to create ways in which we can help people think about their own power and their own privilege in a way that doesn't make them feel uh, guilty, because that doesn't actually result in any change. So it's it's getting people. So, for example, one of the things that we do is get actors in to act at various scenarios and get the delegates in commenting on the verbal and non-verbal ways in which, you know, let's that, that say, this actor is showing more respect to this person than that person or uh, um, so, so it's actually um, showing them not necessarily telling them I mean there's some telling there's some pre-reading there's some fantastic articles and, and videos that, that um, we make of course that, and, but, but really we have to get the blood pressure down around privilege and power so that people can actually think about it and, and see how it is operating Otherwise, what happens is people immediately go into defence, which is not far a million miles away from aggression. Say, oh, it's nothing mm. to do with that, and we don't have to think about race, we don't have to think about gender, and it's all it's all gone too far. So, so the skill I think our our, our responsibility uh, is is to get people to think about it. Um, think about their own journey that you have with me today around diversity and inclusion and then and then and then think through how how it how what they can do positively to change the way that power and privilege is working in their organization and then link it to the business so you know, if I'm choosing people who look like me, then I'm not. Uh, then then that's disadvantageous to them, but it's also disadvantageous to the business. So it's that whole piece around how do we create a safe environment? How do we get them to read and look at videos and get them to think it in a different way? And actually, the the term unconscious bias I think has been really helpful in the last say five five or so years because it it's. It's a, it, it offered and still offers a kind of fresh way to think about it without saying, like, well, you know, you, you're going to be told off now because you are this, this, and this, and not that, that, and that. It, it's actually created an easier way. That does not mean that I think, of course, for a moment, that um, anyone in any organisation uh, and, and any people can be let off the hook. Mm. Great. Well, so that's a, um, a good place to pause. Um, and it's really interesting to hear, to hear the story and to have that captured. So unconscious bias isn't going anywhere. I think we can see that for sure. Yeah. Um, it's, still, it's still a hot term and whatever comes after it, particularly for EW Group, but in, in the diversity and inclusion sector generally, it's going to still be addressing a lot of these um, topics that we've talked about just now whether we call it unconscious bias or we call it something else. Yeah. Um, and it's really great to hear how your personal background has informed, just informed the work that you do, the work I do, the work that we, yeah. that we do as a company. Um, so thanks for giving us some time today, Jane. That's and, great. Uh, I've really enjoyed being quizzed by you. <laughs> 
do hope you've enjoyed this episode of Reworked. The Reworked podcast is a fortnightly programme and it's produced by diversity consultancy EW Group. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a review on the homepage or better still, subscribe and then you can keep up to date with all future episodes. I've been your host, Rachel Wilson, and you can find me on Twitter at RAO Wilson and at The EW Group. Join us next time for more Reworked. <laughs>